Episode 9, Nerva in the Middle, 90-99 AD. Hello and welcome back to 202 Decades. Before getting started, this is another reminder to submit end-of-century questions to 202decades at gmail.com or to the 202decades Facebook page. Last time, we saw the brief but eventful reign of Titus, followed by the ascension of his 30-year-old brother. This Emperor Domitian preferred to run the government himself rather than delegating to the inefficient, outdated, and haughty Senate. Naturally, the senatorial class held him in disdain, and they have tarnished his memory in the histories. As such, he's remembered as one of the worst emperors, perhaps only a little better than Nero or Caligula. But stepping back from our biased sources, it appears Domitian was quite popular with everyone else, the equestrian class, the public, and the army. Although a benefactor of construction and games and performances in Rome, his attention was often on the borders of the empire. He campaigned against the Chatti tribe and conquered a slice of land across the Rhine River in Germania Magna. This conquest secured the upper reaches of the Rhine and Danube rivers, enabling the construction of the defensive Limes. At the same time, Agricola, the governor of Britannia, was busy pushing Roman control into Scotland, or Caledonia as they called it. Agricola was allowed to continue his work on the island for eight years, until the Romans had defeated the last army and marched to the northernmost tip. Only then was the governor brought home, after serving a far longer stint than most governors were given. And yet, Tacitus, the nephew of Agricola, and no doubt others of the senatorial class, begrudged the removal of so successful a governor. They attributed the removal to the emperor's jealousy. We can't know the mind of Domitian, but it seems more likely he was merely following along with precedent. Still, this removal and the subsequent loss of Roman control of the far north of Britannia was soon compounded by several defeats of the legions at the hands of the Dacians under their king Decebalus. Domitian and his generals were eventually able to push the Dacians out of the province of Moesia. After another loss, this time in Dacia, they won a small victory and secured a weak peace deal. But any peace with the Dacians was an imperative for Domitian, as reports came in of trouble brewing elsewhere along the Danube borders. Because of these perceived failures in leadership, on top of his rolling back of senatorial privileges, Saturninus, the governor of Germania Superior, had rebelled. Before his rebellion could spread, armies loyal to Domitian led by Norbanus, Trajan, and Maximus defeated Saturninus. Those who had aided Domitian, including the informer Nerva, were rewarded. Despite the relatively easy defeat of the rebels, the conspiracy added paranoia to Domitian's penchant for autocracy. Much of the empty accusations made against Domitian during the 80s came into fulfillment in the 90s. Perhaps they had been self-fulfilling prophecies. Here's what we are covering this time. Part 1. The Descent of Domitian Part 2. The New Atheists Part 3. The End of the Flavians Part 4. From Our Own Ranks And Part 5. The Good Emperor Part 1. The Descent of Domitian 
Look, you probably already know what I'm about to say here. You already know I'll explain how the ancient sources constantly malign Domitian and lean into his faults, real or made up, how they tell stories about his depravity, and how they explain away his successes. You already know I'll come back and explain how, actually, Domitian ruled well and was popular with the public and the army. His failures were not entirely his fault, and their vilification of him was due to his removal of their privileges. You already know I'll give some caveats to what the ancient authors say, like, most of the depravity Domitian is accused of, such as making a pastime of stabbing flies and plucking off their wings, was probably an invention of those with biases against him. But it does seem true that during the latter years of his reign, he caused a scandal by impregnating his niece, then made her abort the baby. She died in the procedure. That certainly earns him a mark in the depravity column. Caveats like that. And you know that I'll say that although the accusations against Domitian during the first half of his reign were exaggerated, a real shift did occur with the rebellion of Saturninus, and afterward Domitian became paranoid and cruel. I could say all of that, but you already know it. Instead, let's start along the frontier before heading back to check in on Domitian's persecutions. If there were a heat map of places we've talked about the most so far this century, Britain and Judea would surely be bright spots. But the Rhine and Danube frontiers would have to be among the hottest areas, after only Rome itself. We're back at the Danube River this time, not far upstream from the border with Dacia. One correction from last time. I said the Romans defeated Decebalus and the Dacians at Tepai, their capital. While the battle did take place at Tepai, their capital was actually elsewhere, but nearby, at a town called Sarmize Gattusa. Apologies for that error and for my poor Dacian pronunciation. Anyway, upstream from here, in modern Hungary, where the river takes a long, southward turn, other people across the river began to cause trouble for the Romans. I briefly mentioned last decade that allied barbarians had been called to help defeat the Dacian incursion, but they had declined to their requests. Domitian had executed their ambassadors for their refusals. These barbarians were the Marcomanni, the Quadi, and the Iazages. The Marcomanni I've mentioned before. During the first couple of decades, when Augustus had almost invaded their territory prior to the Illyrian Revolt and the disaster at the Teutoburg Forest. They, along with the closely related Quadi, were Germanic peoples. The Iaziges were, however, something entirely different. They were a Sarmatian tribe. The Sarmatians were a nomadic steppe people who had migrated west to modern Hungary during the last two centuries BC. Since that time, they had mostly settled into a sedentary agricultural lifestyle, but they still specialized in cavalry warfare. In the year of the four emperors, they, along with most of the Germanic tribes, had offered their support to Vespasian. Now, though, they were making trouble for his youngest son. The Iazages had formed an alliance with the Quadi and Marcomanni and raided into Pannonia. It seems Domitian led a campaign against them in 89 without much success. The timeline here is confusing. Whether the campaign occurred before or after the peace with the Dacians is unclear. If I had to make a guess of the timeline, here's how it would go. 
The Dacians invade Moesia. Romans ask the Quadi, Marcomanni, and Diazages for help. The tribes refuse, and Domitian has their ambassadors executed. Then those tribes make trouble for Domitian in Pannonia. Domitian, finished cleaning up Dacia, heads to Pannonia where he skirmishes with the three tribes. Meanwhile, the first Roman retaliation into Dacia is crushed. A second retaliation force enters Dacia and secures a minor victory over Decebalus. Before the Romans can march on the Dacian capital, Domitian suffers a minor defeat by the three tribes in Pannonia. Word of this defeat arrives in Dacia and peace negotiations begin. The Dacians use the nearby instability to get a better deal. A deal the Romans had to take or else face simultaneous wars. If that's not the exact order of operations, I think it's very close. Domitian returned to Rome soon after and received an ovation for his victory over the Dacians, an honor a step below a triumph. It must have been public knowledge that the peace Domitian's generals had won was not an ideal one. He knew he couldn't get away with throwing himself a full triumph. In 92, Domitian had to rush back to the Danube frontier. The fragile peace with the Dacians still held, but the three tribes, the Marcomanni, the Quadi, and the Aeaziges, had re-entered Pannonia. The initial response came from the 21st Legion. Keen listeners will remember from last episode that this was one of the legions that had revolted with Saturninus in 89. After the rebellion had been defeated, they had been relocated to guard the Danube in Pannonia. But in the spring of 92, when the three tribes crossed into Pannonia, the 21st Legion was surprised, defeated, and annihilated. It would never again reform. Domitian reached the area and spent the summer, May to September, defeating the invaders and chasing them out of Pannonia. The Romans did not follow them back across the river, though. Perhaps Domitian and his generals had had their share of campaigns outside of Roman territory. I wish I could give more detail on these events, but our source, Suetonius, only mentions it in passing. The ancient historian Tacitus, and I should have mentioned this sooner, is of no help here. In total, Tacitus wrote two histories and a few other works. The first history, the Annals, covered Augustus to Nero in 16 volumes. The second, called the Histories, covered the year of the four emperors to the end of Domitian's reign over 14 volumes. Sounds good, right? Well, lamentably, the final nine of those 14 sections have been lost. We only have the first five, which reached the Siege of Jerusalem and the end of the Batavian Revolt in 70. We know the contents of the remaining nine works because later writers, specifically Jerome, a Christian writer in the late 300s, mentions that Tacitus' history encompasses 30 volumes and ends with Domitian. We are left with Cassius Dio and Suetonius as our main guides for the next period. Cassius Dio was more removed from the events, writing in the early 3rd century. And to make things worse, from the reign of Claudius onward, what we have from Cassius Dio is only preserved in an abridged form thanks to an epitome or summary written a millennia later by a Byzantine monk. Yeah. Suetonius will soon drop out of use too. His last biography is of Domitian. We are beginning to leave the period of Roman history which is best documented. From here onward for centuries, things will become at least a little more murky. 
it will now be much rarer that we can cross-reference multiple sources regarding a single event. Back in Rome, Domitian returned to rooting out his enemies. He prosecuted writers who engaged in libel, especially against himself, but not only him. Even now, he tried to instill competent justice into the system. He removed judges who took bribes and overrode laws that were passed that had clear conflicts of interest. As his paranoia grew, so did his megalomania. Suetonius says he began to deify himself while still alive. He had statues of himself put up all over the capital. Not cheap marble statues, though. Silver and gold statues. They had to be of a certain weight to ensure their purity. And Suetonius tells us that as July and August had been named after Julius Caesar and Augustus, he renamed September and October as Germanicus and Domitianus. These, of course, did not stick. And at last, he did persecute the Senate. Behind every smiling face, he saw a plot to overthrow him, and he remarked it unfair that only coup attempts that succeeded were believed to be real. From 93 to 96, Domitian had at least 20 senators executed. On its face, that sounds pretty bad, and it's understandable why his memory would be tarnished. But let's compare that with another emperor who was remembered well, Claudius. Claudius, the fourth emperor, had at least 35 senators executed for alleged plots, and yet he was not so hated as Domitian. Claudius moved power out of the Senate's hands too, to his freedmen secretaries, compared to Domitian moving power to his equestrian appointees. The real nail in the coffin for Domitian's favorability among the Senate was his attitude toward them. He failed to treat them as the very special people they felt themselves to be. Probably hearkening back to his equestrian background, he treated the equestrians as if they were the Senate's equals. In real numbers, Claudius had been worse for the Senate, but his executions had targeted specific groups within the aristocracy, while he maintained support among other groups. Domitian, though, had gotten off on the wrong foot immediately. To his credit, he did try to appease his critics. Domitian repeatedly appointed those vocally opposed to him into positions of power, but it was never enough. He must have lacked a certain charisma. Domitian was a successful administrator, but only as an autocrat. He did not have the skill of Augustus, leading the Senate gently with a thousand webs. Instead, Domitian yanked them by a chain, or strangled them with it. Part 2. The New Atheists Unable to appease the Senate, and with whispering plots behind every door, Domitian had resorted to executions. Killing those opposed to you is certainly an autocratic trait. However, the historian Tom Holland in his recent book, Pax, presents the idea that Domitian isn't just acting as an autocrat because he's power-hungry. Instead, Domitian saw himself as the chief mediator between Rome and the gods. Yes, he was divinely appointed to ensure the gods favored Rome. It fell on him to enforce morality and root out disruptive elements in society, lest disaster fall on the empire. Such as civil war, which his father had survived and brought to an end, or the natural disasters his brother had faced, fire, plague, and volcanic destruction. 
so Domitian worked to establish proper religio in his empire. This Latin word, from which we get the word religion, shouldn't be thought of in the same way we use it today. Instead, it literally meant ties, binds, or obligations. Thus, religiones were the obligatory practices that satisfied the gods. Domitian took a number of steps to ensure the Romans properly held up their end of the obligations to the gods. The first of these was to ensure proper morality. I mentioned earlier Domitian's attempts to rein in corruption among the judiciary and prevent laws being passed that specifically favored an individual. I also jumped the gun last decade and spoke about Domitian executing the chief Vestal Virgin. This actually took place in 91. The Vestals were considered sisters of all the Romans, so any loss of virginity was considered incestuous. If you're trying to appease the gods, ridding them of an oath-breaking Vestal was a good idea. And to show his seriousness and prevent future infractions, the chief Vestal had been buried alive. On the same note, he revived the Julian Law, which, if you recall way back to the first decade episode, Augustus had implemented for his own moral reforms. This allowed those caught in adultery to be exiled. Of course, building temples to the gods was another fitting way to satisfy them. Domitian had a temple built for Jupiter the Guardian, and we shouldn't forget that the Stadium of Domitian and the Flavian Amphitheater itself also honored the Roman gods. Outside of Rome, he also constructed temples. In Egypt, he helped fund a temple to Hathor and a temple to Knum. Domitian could be quite tolerant to non-Roman polytheism, so long as it could be easily syncretized with Roman religion. As we have just seen, he honored the Egyptian gods and promoted the association of various Roman and Egyptian gods with each other. He drew the line at those who scoffed at the gods. The group which faced official persecution was the Stoics. I've only mentioned Stoicism once before, when Vespasian exiled some Stoics from Rome. But here seems like a good place for a quick overview. The philosophy of Stoicism developed out of the Greek philosophical school of Cynicism, which advocated living a simple, virtuous life in accordance with nature. Stoicism was first taught by Zeno of Citium in the 3rd century BC. Rather than drearily putting up with suffering, an image Stoicism often draws to mind in the modern world, the philosophy actually focused on achieving a happy life. They taught that this happy life, something called eudaimonia, could be achieved through virtuous living. Virtue comes through practicing wisdom, courage, justice, and moderation. The Stoics said, virtue is the only good. Everything else, wealth, power, strength, or pleasure, were neither good nor bad, but have no value in bringing about the happy life. One could become virtuous by freeing oneself from all passions. You can see how this philosophy has an almost Buddhist quality of renouncing attachments. They believed in God or a God in their own way. For the Stoics, God and the universe were one and the same. Pantheism. So we see how these philosophers would draw the ire of Domitian. Here were people who did not honor Jupiter, let alone Domitian's own deified father. In 88 or 89, Domitian had removed the Stoic philosophers for Rome. In 93, he had put seven of the Stoic philosophers under trial for the crime of insulting the emperor. 
Three of them were convicted and executed, including a man who had served as consul just a year prior. The next year, he exiled the Stoics from all of Italy. Epictetus, one of the most prominent Stoic philosophers, left Italy at this time and fled across the Adriatic to the Greek city of Nicopolis. Here, he founded a prominent school of Stoicism. Domitian soon found other groups who refused to honor the gods. Among the senatorial class who Domitian had executed was a cousin named Flavius Clemens. Clemens and Domitian were apparently close associates for some time. Without surviving children of his own, Domitian had begun to make Clemens' sons his heirs. He renamed one Vespasian and the other Domitian. In 95, Clemens served alongside Domitian as one of the two ordinary consuls for the first part of the year. However, something must have fractured the relationship during this term. In April of 95, shortly after leaving his consulship, he was accused and convicted of atheism and executed. Cassius Dio says the charge brought against both of them, Clemens and his wife Domitilla, was that of atheism, a charge on which many others who drifted into Jewish ways were condemned. It appears that in his proximity to Domitian, it was noticed that Clemens failed to honor the gods or the cult of the emperor. A few historians suggest that Clemens was drifting into Judaism, but a number of others believe that Clemens was an early Christian. This fits with church tradition. The Christian writer Eusebius, who wrote at the beginning of the 4th century, asserts as much, that Clemens was killed for his Christian faith. Domitilla, his wife, was exiled to an island. The Christians were often accused of atheism. They refused to honor the gods or the emperor. Worse, they were not fully Jews either. The Jews at least practiced an established, recognized, and ancient religion, one that had distinct practices and was taxed. But many of these early Christians, who were barely distinguishable from the Jews by the average Roman, had begun to not follow the practices which distinguished the Jews. Suetonius says, and those were prosecuted who, without publicly acknowledging that faith, yet lived as Jews, as well as those who concealed their origin and did not pay the tribute levied upon their people. So if they did not follow Jewish practices, and thus didn't pay the Jewish tax, they would have to honor the Roman gods. But these followers of Christ wanted to do neither, neither following Jewish practices nor honoring the emperor and the gods with sacrifices. Domitian and others would not tolerate this new path. Around this time, we can begin to see growing splits between Christians and the rest of the Jewish community. The loss of the temple in Jerusalem was a major catalyst. Other factors at this point was the preaching of Paul to the Gentiles, non-Jews, and inviting them to follow Christ and the Jewish God without being required to follow Jewish dietary or dress practices. The two communities would continue to peel apart over the next few decades, and by the mid-2nd century, they would become easily distinguishable. We'll talk more about this split and the new developments in Judaism in response to another war with Rome in a few decades. The early church pointed to Domitian as one of their first great persecutors, alongside Nero. The last book of the Christian Bible, called the Book of Revelations or the Apocalypse of John, was probably written during the latter years of Domitian's reign, partly as an encouragement to endure persecution. The fourth bishop of Rome, an office later called the Pope, was Clement. 
he wrote a letter to Christians in Corinth that has survived to the present. In it, he mentions sudden and repeated misfortunes and hindrances which have befallen us, which most believe refers to the persecutions under Domitian. Domitian's persecution of the early church seems to have been fairly limited in scope. The persecutions did not seek to eliminate Christians as a whole, only to punish those who made their resistance to the gods clear. Another possible example was Manius Asilius Glabrio. This man served as consul in 91 alongside Trajan. In the years since his consulship, he was exiled from Rome. About the same time Clemens was killed, in 95, Glabrio was also executed. Suetonius says his execution came because he was conspiring against the empire as a contriver of novelties. Most have considered this phrase, contriver of novelties, to denote his Christian faith. According to church tradition, Glabrio, shortly after his consulship, was forced to enter the arena at an estate of Domitian and fight a lion. Glabrio, though, killed the lion without being harmed. Angry to see his plans fall through, Glabrio was exiled, then executed. Both Glabrio and Clemens had served as consuls and may have been converts to Christianity. They both are associated with early Christian catacombs, Clemens with the catacomb of Domitilla and Glabrio with the catacomb of Priscilla. Part 3. The End of the Flavians As with most of Domitian's policies, his execution of the senatorial Christians and his exiling of the Stoics was unpopular with the Senate. Despite the risk to their lives, conspiracies began again to grow against Domitian. This time, though, those in his personal court were in on the plot. The trigger which pushed his court over the edge seemed to be, along with the killing of his relative Clemens, the execution of their freedman Epaphroditus. This Epaphroditus had been a secretary under Nero. After Nero had been declared an enemy of the state, Epaphroditus accompanied him as he escaped from Rome. As his pursuers closed in, Epaphroditus had assisted Nero in his suicide. Now in 95, suddenly filled with conviction against the killers of an emperor, Domitian sought out Epaphroditus and had him executed. Either Epaphroditus was well-liked or he was seen as wholly innocent. Parthenius, the chamberlain, an officer who managed the house of the ruler, seems to have set the ball rolling on the plot. He enlisted Maximus, his servant, and Stephanus, the servant of Domitian's niece Domitilla, remember that's the exiled wife of the martyred Clemens, to do the killing. There had been warnings for Domitian. According to Suetonius, a Germanic soothsayer predicted his imminent death. Domitian sentenced this giver of foul prophecy to death, but his paranoia grew. We are told that the goddess Minerva appeared to him in a dream and told him that she could no longer protect him. Then, an omen predicted that his end would come at midday. Domitian apparently spent his last weeks on edge, dreading the coming of noon. On September 18th, he approached a servant and asked what hour it was. This was Stephanus. He lied and said it was already late afternoon. Domitian apparently relaxed now and sunk down at his desk. Stephanus had been feigning an injury and wore a cast on his arm for weeks. Now, pulling off his cast, a knife was revealed. 
The emperor was taken unaware and stabbed in the groin while seated at his desk. Rather than falling and dying, Domitian fought back. He reached for his bed, but the sword, usually under Domitian's pillow, was missing, removed by a servant the night before. He wrestled with Stephanus, who continued to stab him. Maximus now entered the room and helped end Domitian's life. After seven stab wounds, Domitian bled out and died. His body was quickly and unceremoniously cremated. Thus ended the Flavian dynasty in blood. Domitian had lived 44 years and ruled for the last 15. He had been a competent and loved ruler by all but the Senate. Although his household turned against him, we shall soon see that the army was still devoted to him. Like Nero, Domitian's place as the last of his dynasty ensured he would be reviled in the histories written under the patronage of his successors. They had to show everyone that it was a good thing the old dynasty was gone. They used the histories to say, see, look how bad things had gotten before we came along. Hopefully I've made it clear that I don't think Domitian belongs on a short list of bad emperors. But I don't want to take things too far the other way either. His greatest achievements, in my opinion, are 1. Continuing stability for 15 years. 2. Dealing successfully with inflation. 3. Securing the Limes Germanicus at the headwaters of the Rhine and Danube. And 4. Achieving peace with Dacia while dealing with the invasion of the other tribes on the Danube and a rebellious governor. He loses some points for his lack of tact with the Senate and for his executions and persecutions. Not an outstanding record, but not too bad of a reign. I think he earns a solid B. The Senate, though, had always given Domitian poor marks. When news reached them that the emperor was dead, they burst into celebration. What their exuberance looked like was man after man standing and denouncing Domitian publicly. Ladders were brought in, and his images were torn down, and statues of him were smashed. According to the Fasti Ostiensis, a calendar-slash-list of Roman officials found by archaeologists at the port of Ostia, later on the same day Domitian was killed, the Senate declared a new princeps. Part 4. From Our Own Ranks With the death of Domitian, the trend of ruling by inheritance, by heredity, ended for the next century. The Flavians had leaned into inheritance of the Principate, and the Julio-Claudians before them had tried, without luck, to do the same. Now, though, the Senate seized the opportunity to appoint one of its own members as princeps and correct course toward republicanism. Their choice was neither the most charismatic nor the most powerful member. Instead, they chose the guy who had always been around and was trusted by everyone. They chose a man who was competent without being an egomaniac. They chose a stable figure they could all rally around. They chose Nerva. Marcus Cocius Nerva was 66 years old when he was hailed as princeps by his colleagues in the Senate. Although Nerva was not of old Roman blood, he was from an Italian family that had long served in the administration. His great-grandfather had been a consul and a governor of the province of Asia. Members of each generation between that guy and Nerva also served as consul. Nerva himself seems to have begun his career in the Senate under the reign of Nero. 
Our sources don't go into detail, but they point to Nerva being instrumental in uncovering the Pisonian conspiracy against Nero. During the year of the Four Emperors, Nerva had strongly backed Vespasian and was rewarded for it. He received a consulship in 71 AD, soon after Vespasian took power. Nerva disappears from the records for over a decade here. Presumably, he served as an advisor to first Vespasian, then Titus, and last to Domitian. We finally hear about Nerva again in the wake of another revolt, when in 89 Saturninus revolted against Domitian, Nerva helped uncover the plot before it had a chance to spread. Again, he was rewarded for his loyalty, and he served as consul alongside Domitian for the following year. There's a lesson here though for all of you listeners. If you're planning to rebel against the emperor, don't tell Nerva. Jumping ahead to 96, when word reached the Senate that Domitian was dead. After the cathartic tearing down of Domitian's images, Nerva was appointed emperor. Suetonius doesn't mention any involvement of Nerva in the death of Domitian, but Cassius Dio says that Nerva was approached by the conspirators. If true, Nerva finally held his tongue until the plot had been carried out. Suetonius may have purposely omitted this detail though. Writing under Nerva's adopted successors, it would not have been expedient to implicate associates of his benefactors in the murder of an emperor. And so, for the first time since Octavian had been hailed as Augustus, an emperor was hailed not through dissent, not by the threatening suggestion of the Praetorians, but by the Senate itself. His appointment is notable. Unlike the Julio-Claudians, he couldn't point to pedigree, And unlike Vespasian or his sons, Nerva couldn't point to military victories. Nerva was the guy everyone knew, a stable point to rally around. And precisely because he was old, physically weak, and childless, he would not be likely to limit the Senate's rights or consolidate power around himself. Nerva set about ruling not as a dominus, not as an imperator, but truly as a princeps, a first citizen among equals. His only legitimacy came from the Senate, so as a fellow senator, Nerva consulted the Senate in all his decisions. His first priorities were in righting the wrongs of his predecessor. He guaranteed there would be no deaths, no executions under his rule. He brought back exiles, restored confiscated property, and distributed lands to the poor. Of course, the gifts of cash would need to be distributed as well. The common people had not held the same disdain for Domitian that the Senate had, so they would need to be convinced monetarily to accept the new regime. The army and Praetorians also needed bribes, I mean gifts, to ensure their loyalty. The ascension of a new emperor, especially of a new dynasty, was never a cheap process. Nerva next turned his attention to taxation. The Flavians had been notorious for their strict taxation policies. If you remember from the 70s, Vespasian was criticized for making a new tax on the public urinals. He had also increased tax revenue by creating a new tax on the Jews of the empire and by canceling the tax-free status that Nero had granted the cities of Greece. Domitian was known for fully enforcing the existing taxes rather than let inefficient collection continue. No one liked new taxes or having to pay taxes which had not been enforced in the past. So Nerva went about cutting taxes and collecting them in a slightly more open-handed manner. 
In his short reign, he had little time to make any major impact on the urban landscape of Rome. He did complete a new forum, begun by Domitian, called the Forum of Nerva. Most impactful, though, was the beginning of the Alimenta program. Although his successors improved, expanded, and finalized the Alimenta, in essence, it was a welfare program that provided food, money, and education for poor children and orphans of Italy. That all sounds nice, and Nerva is recorded as saying, I have done nothing that could prevent me from laying down the imperial office and returning to private life and safety. If we take a balance sheet of all these initiatives together, donatives, tax breaks, new public buildings, and the Alimenta, what we wind up with is a shortfall on the balance sheet. It probably wasn't as monumental as some historians have made it out to be in the past. But it was significant enough that Nerva gathered a council to find ways to cut expenses. Fiscal austerity would be needed. That meant fewer games and building programs. Domitian's fine gold and silver statues were melted down, which helped even the balance sheets for a little while. With this monetary crisis in the background, we need to now consider the men-at-arms in the empire. As I've mentioned a few times, Domitian had been popular with the army, even in his latter years. The legions were not pleased with the news that the emperor had been assassinated, and some new bureaucrat had been appointed by the senate as their emperor. They had not been consulted, and they did not support him. Nerva had given them a sizable donative when he became emperor, but that did nothing to soothe their discontent. Similarly, the Praetorians were not content with Nerva. Their old leader, Petronius, had been accused of helping to assassinate Domitian, so Nerva removed him from office upon his ascension. Nerva tried to soothe the Praetorians by giving them their first raise since Augustus. They were pacified for a year. In 97, though, the Praetorians had had enough. Maybe it was their shared outlook with the legions, or maybe they were privy to the looming financial crisis, or maybe they just missed Domitian. Without warning, the Praetorians assaulted the palace and cornered Nerva. Several of his household servants were killed. Nerva presented his throat to the intruders, but he was spared. In exchange for his life, they demanded that Domitian's conspirators be executed. Nerva complied, and Petronius and Parthenius were executed. Nerva's authority was now in shambles. What good is an emperor who could be pushed around so easily? And who would be the next to make a demand of Nerva at the point of a sword? Shortly after the Praetorian assault, Nerva took the step of appointing an heir by means of adoption. The adoptee would need to be someone acceptable to the Senate and familiar to the army. Nerva did all of Roman history a favor by choosing Marcus Ulpius Traianus. This Trajan, as we call him in English, was adopted and within three months, Nerva died from illness. He had served the empire for only 16 months, a transitional middle between the Flavians and whatever would come next. Part 5. The Good Emperor Trajan was born in southern Hispania in the city of Italica, a colony established by Scipio Africanus during the Second Punic War. Thus, Trajan was not a native of Hispania, but of old Italian blood. His father, of the same name, was a senator who may have begun his career under Claudius. 
This father of Trajan may have served under General Corbulo in the Armenian War, and during the Jewish Revolt, he became known and favored by Vespasian. His son, then, had a leg up, and he quickly rose to prominence in the army. Under the Flavians, his father served as governor of Syria. Trajan continued his climb and became a middle-ranking officer. When his father left Syria, Trajan transferred to one of the Rhine provinces. That about catches things up to where we briefly encountered Trajan in the last decade. He had marched with his army from Hispania to come to Domitian's aid during the revolt of Saturninus. Apparently, he had stayed in the area for a time after Domitian and the rest of his allies returned home to Rome. He returned to Hispania, but was soon recalled to Rome. In 91, he served as consul alongside Glabrio, the probably Christian man who was put into the arena with a lion, then later executed by Domitian. In the 90s, while in Rome, he married Pompeia Platina, although he had little interest in her. His admiration was always toward young men. Next, Trajan became governor of Germania Superior and thus commanded a large number of legions. He apparently was well-liked by the army and respected by the Senate. So when Nerva chose or was forced to choose a successor, Trajan was a natural choice. The decision was brought to Trajan by his close friend and cousin, Publius Aelius Hadrianus. It is telling of Trajan's character that he did not immediately race for Rome. He stayed at the frontier and continued his work. Three months later, in late January of 98, another messenger came from Rome and found Trajan in Germania Inferior at the city of Colonia, modern Cologne, Germany. He was there meeting with his close friend Lucius Licinius Sura, who was the governor of this province. The messenger delivered the news that Nerva was dead and the Senate had hailed Trajan as emperor. Still, Trajan did not go to Rome. Instead, he took his time and learned from Nerva's mistakes. Trajan knew he had to have the armies on his side. All of them. Details are lacking, but he seems to have met with the legions in Germania Inferior before heading east to Pannonia. The legions stationed in his own province, Germania Superior, would have already been familiar and loyal to him. He met with the legions in Pannonia, but he must have traveled to Moesia as well, if he was to see all of the legions along the Danube. Perhaps it was during this time along the Danube that Trajan saw the weakness of the frontier here, the danger of the Dacians, and the desire for conquest grew in him. And conquer he would. Before Trajan is dead, we will see Rome reach new limits never reached before or after. Before turning his face toward Rome, Trajan ordered the prefect of the Praetorian Guard to come visit him. For his crimes against Nerva, Trajan had him swiftly executed. Now, nearly two years after his ascension, in the summer of 99, Trajan came to Rome and entered the city as emperor. Rather than a triumphal entry or a grand procession, Trajan eased any fears the Senate harbored by simply walking into the city. No white horse, no golden chariot. Instead, he mingled with the senators and the people. When he reached the Senate House, Pliny the Younger, the guy who wrote the account of the eruption at Vesuvius at the end of the 70s, was chosen to deliver the panegyric, the public greeting of praise. Pliny calls Trajan a chaste, pious, godlike prince. Contrasting Trajan with Domitian, he says, 
But let us not address him with the flattering title of a god or divinity, for we speak not of a tyrant, but of a fellow citizen, not of a master, but of a father. He boasts that he is one of us, nor does he forget that he is only a man, though the ruler of men. Let us then appreciate our good fortune and prove ourselves worthy of it. In praise, Pliny says, Our prince has obtained unprecedented praise and glory. His seriousness is not lessened by his cheerfulness, his gravity by his simplicity, or his dignity by his humanity. He makes a reference to Trajan being forced to become emperor, and gives a window into the revolt of the Praetorians against Nerva. You could not have been forced, but for the danger that threatened our country. You would not have assumed the imperial power were it not to save the empire. And I feel sure that the Praetorians revolted because great force and danger were necessary to overcome your modesty. Then, the revolt of the Praetorians was a great disgrace to our age, a grave injury to the commonwealth. The emperor and father of the human race was besieged, taken, and shut up. The power of saving men was taken from the mildest of old men. Our prince was deprived of his most salutary power, freedom of action. If only such calamity could induce you to assume the reins of government, I should say that it was worth the price. Trajan listened to all of this courteously. If any doubters still remained in Rome, by the end of Trajan's reign, I think all would agree with Pliny that the events surrounding Trajan's rise were worth the price. 144 decades after the 90s, Machiavelli, the Renaissance political philosopher, coined the name the Five Good Emperors to refer to Nerva, Trajan, and their three later successors. When Edward Gibbon wrote the massively impactful Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire in the late 1700s, he hearkened back to the period initiated by Nerva as a time of unusual prosperity and good governance. Gibbon says, If a man were called upon to fix that period in the history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would, without hesitation, name that which elapsed from the deaths of Domitian to the ascension of Commodus. Let's keep our heads about ourselves as we move into this period. You may have noticed by now that the Pax Romana, the period encompassing 27 BC to 180 AD, a period which we've covered half of already hasn't been so peaceful. How many emperors have been killed? How many senators purged? How many legions destroyed? How many rebellions? How many barbarian uprisings or incursions? Let's not forget the war with the Parthians, or the civil war of the year of 69, or the blood and smoke and rubble from the great Judean revolt. Ah, peace. And there we have it, the first century. Ten episodes and ten months since the first decade episode was posted. At this rate, the show will be wrapping up in early 2040. I sincerely hope, though, that as this show grows, I will be able to ramp up production. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll subscribe, leave a rating, and tell a friend. Next time, rather than advance the plot, we will take a break from the narrative and have our first end-of-century episode. Please send any question you have about the first century or anything else I've covered so far to 202decades at gmail.com or the 202decades Facebook page. I'll see you then.